Hello, and welcome to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And to do it in a way you can understand, even if you don't live and breathe this stuff like we do. Plus, if you listen to the end, we'll have a special surprise. You can email me at jrovner at kff.org or tweet me. I'm at jrovner. We're taping today at 10 a.m. Thursday, July 6th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast. And as they say, things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in The New York Times. Hey, Margot. Hey. Uh, Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hi, Joanne. Hey, Julie. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Welcome, Paige. Hi. Since Congress is on break this week, I thought we'd start with what news there is on the Senate health bill and then backtrack a little bit with some of the big issues that are at play in the whole repeal and replace debate. Paige, what are you hearing about how Senate Republicans are trying to change their bill to win a majority vote when they come back to Washington next week? Well, right now we're in a little bit of a holding pattern because we're really waiting for the CBO to come back with their score. Um, McConnell shipped off about five to seven changes potential changes to this legislation at the end of last week. There's a couple things in there that could appeal to conservatives, a couple things that could appeal to moderates, and he sees these as kind of levers he could pull to get that pathway to 50 votes. And what's an example of a couple of those things? The thing that the conservatives are really pushing for is this amendment from Ted Cruz, which would basically expand the opt-out for insurers for more of the ACA regulations, including potentially the protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Another change that McConnell's looking at is an expansion of the use of health savings accounts, possibly allowing people to uh, put their premiums, uh, pay their premiums with those accounts. There's a which couple, you can't do now. Which you can't do now, correct. And there are a couple of changes that the CBO is also scoring that could help to bring the moderates on board. Uh, there's talk of adding on more opioid funding. I think also the CBO is looking at removing this CPIU index that's supposed to start in 2026, which would basically cause these deeper Medicaid cuts, rolling that back possibly. Uh, and a couple other things that the, that the CBO is looking But those are kind of the main ones that I think could potentially be added to the bill when members return next week. Now, Margo, uh, you wrote about this amendment from Texas uh, Republican Ted Cruz. And actually, we we learned yesterday that in the House, some of the very conservatives said if it got added, they might be able to support this bill. Tell us a little bit about this amendment and what it would do. Yeah, it's sort of clever. It's he's he's trying to find a compromise so that he can preserve a lot of the consumer protections that moderates are really concerned about keeping, but also allow less regulation of insurance products, which I think is important to conservatives who think there needs to be more of a free market for insurance plan design. So what his proposal says is that uh, any insurer that wants to sell health insurance to individuals needs to have one plan that uh, fulfills all of the Obamacare rules, and then they can offer basically whatever else they want. And so the idea is that if you're the kind of customer who wants a plan with all the rules that you know protects pre-existing conditions, that covers the wide array of benefits that are required by Obamacare and all of these other regulations, you could buy that plan. If you want to buy like a super high deductible plan that like only covers hospital care, you could buy that plan maybe if it's on the market. And so, presumably that would have a much lower premium. Presumably it would have a much lower premium. I mean, if you talk to experts in insurance markets, what they say is that this what this really does is it kind of splits the market in half. So you end up with people who are relatively high income and especially people who are relatively healthy. They're going to buy like the skimpy hospital care only sorts of plans. And then people who are low income and need subsidies or people who like have health conditions. You know, if you're someone who has HIV, if you're someone who has 
uh, multiple sclerosis or cancer or some kind of chronic disease, like you really probably need a plan that covers everything. So the idea is like those people probably are going to buy the Obamacare compliant plans. And the result is that the plans that follow all the rules will tend to be really, really expensive. And the plans that don't are going to be, you know, comparatively much cheaper. And so it creates some problems. But it's interesting because the compliant plans would be eligible for subsidies. So for Americans who earn below like around $42,000, they actually won't really experience uh, these super, super high premiums. So if you're a person with a pre-existing condition and you're under that income threshold, this is like actually potentially like a pretty good high risk pool for you. You can get in there, you only pay a certain percent of your income for insurance, and you get insurance that is really comprehensive. But the difficulty comes for people who earn a little bit more who may be exposed to these extremely high premiums and might get priced out of that market. And and that's I, I know that that that's been been mentioned by a lot of people who are concerned that that those people who do earn too much to to have to get the the help from the federal government um, would would be exposed to those premiums. But also that wouldn't it raise the cost for the federal government because the premiums would go way up. The individuals wouldn't pay them, but the federal government would. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting questions that CBO is probably dealing with right now. It all depends on how high do they think the premiums will really get and also how many people do they think will be in this part of the market. Will there be a lot of people who will choose to buy this insurance just because they're subsidized or will some lower income, healthier people choose, choose to go outside the market? So I, you know, the nerdy part of me is like really interested in how CBO analyzes this proposal. So Joanne, while we're waiting for the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, to, to decide how much these things cost and what impact they might have on people's coverage. Um, uh, members of the Senate have gone home this week. It's the 4th of July. Um, normally, this would be a week where you'd see a lot of town hall meetings, a lot of events, a lot of picnics and stuff. That's not really been the case this time, has it? I think more of them might have gone to Afghanistan. Um, there are very few town halls this week. Um, actually, there'll be an interesting one tonight. We're speaking on Thursday morning. And this one, uh, one of the ones that, that is just interesting that he's out there, which is Senator Moran from Kansas. He had been quite um, quiet during the weeks leading up to the peak, whatever, collapse, postponement, stall, whatever you want to call it, of the of the Senate bill last week. And then he came out and said uh, he didn't like it. And he he hadn't that was something that people he wasn't on people's radar and you know Kansas itself is going through some very interesting changes right now it's a state that had gone very to very conservative tax and economic policies and there's a backlash um, toward a more moderate Republican stance so I, I think they just his, raised taxes didn't they yeah for education in particular they've been cutting and cutting and cutting with Governor Brownback and guess what if you cut you end up with no money for your schools is what, you know, this is a fight within the Republicans in Kansas because they're, they're not a lot of Democrats in office there. So Moran tonight will be interesting, but we don't know what he said. Cruz, uh, Ted, Senator Cruz, um, he didn't have a formal town hall, but he's had public appearances. You know, he is not shy about his opinions. He's mixed it up with liberals who've come to protest. Um, but, you know, he's not a bellwether. We know where he is. Um, Heller, Dean Heller from Nevada is very, very, very interesting because he is, you know, he may turn out to be the pivotal vote in this debate. He's certainly one of the pivotal votes. He has come out, he's a, a moderate Republican who's come out against the bill. Nevada has a Republican governor, Sandoval, who has also been implementing the bill um, more aggressively pretty much than any one of the two or three Republican governors who's pretty much embraced it. Um, he had a Heller did have a town hall. He had it in a very rural part of uh, Nevada. Um, Nevada does have some problems with Obamacare. There's some bare counties that don't have coverage, um, some rural counties. And, uh, you know, it, it, 
it wasn't a fireworksy thing, but it was interesting that he was out there. And Susan Collins just got, you know... From Maine. From Maine. She's another independent-minded uh, moderate, and uh, she doesn't like this bill. And the re- people came out there to support her opposition to it. There's not a lot much... There's I can't think of... I may be missing one, but it's certainly not been a big town hall week like we... You know, there were a lot more in January and February. They became very heated, which is why there aren't so many right now. <laughs> yeah. the, the Times had a story that I really enjoyed uh, yesterday where they... S- said not only are there fewer town halls, but that typically you see all of the senators march in Fourth of July parades and that there were very few Republican senators that were even doing that kind of public appearance where you're not really even talking to the public, but where you I think they were worried about being subjected to protesters or people heckling them or whatever. Well, they're also well, using after the, um, as Mark would point out, they have been making fewer public appearances. But I mean, some of them, um, I can't remember if I read it in the Times story, where are saying after the shooting recently at the baseball practice that they're nervous about being in public and how that's playing out and, you know, well, Senator Pat Toomey had a town hall last night, but it was by invite only, and people were arrested outside of it. Do we know who got invited? <laughs> uh, I imagine people that were screened by his staff. I'm not sure. Yeah, they've done. They've also been doing teletown halls, a number of them, for the last few months, not just this week. In which case, you may you can screen, but you can also you don't get that viral video moment that can go all over the place, which is damaging or can be politically damaging. You could get a viral audio moment. It's not a, yes, but it doesn't have which is what we're trying to do, right? But it it doesn't. <laughs> have the same visceral impact when you see somebody getting up there and talking about, you know, my kid is sick, how it will affect them. I am sick. My husband is sick, whatever. The That sort of, when you you you're taught, you watch the town halls this winter where people were getting up and talking about their own pre-existing conditions, their own struggles with health care. This is a really visceral issue. It's scary to people. And the the, the the audio ones are easier for the Congress people and the senators to control than the video ones. Joanne, oh. one thing that uh, was interesting to me when Senator Moran came out uh, with his opposition to the bill, as I called someone who knew Kansas politics, and I said, oh, like, he wasn't on my radar. Like, what's no, going he wasn't on? anyone's radar. Right? And they pointed out to me that he had done a town hall meeting at 730 in the morning on a Monday before coming back to Washington. And I think, like, this was an attempt to try to, like, keep it quiet, you know? And there was all this local news coverage of video of people just, like, hammering him. And I think, you know, right. that may have sat with him, you know, during the couple of weeks between that event and when it came time for him to speak out about the bill. Because when voters come out at 730 in the morning to yell at you, it is um, a signal that there was something going on. And, and that they should probably listen. Well, while, while, while uh, uh, senators are at home doing whatever it is that they're doing at home this week, I thought we would, you know, sort of uh, take take a few minutes and actually talk about some of the big concepts that are behind both, you know, that were problems in the health care system before the Affordable Care Act um, and that the, the Affordable Care Act addressed in successful or less successful ways and that the Republicans would like to try and address in different ways. So I thought we would start with pre-existing conditions because that tends to be the one that, that people sort of relate to the most. So, so Paige, why don't you talk about sort of the problems that we had with pre-existing conditions before the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, well, it was a really big problem for people with diabetes or cancer. They were could be denied coverage, or even if they got a plan, they could be charged sky-high premiums. And so there was a recognition, of course, in the ACA that you got to fix that problem. Insurers were required to accept these patients. Um, it, the topic of pre-existing conditions uh, became a huge, huge fight if you look back at the, how the House bill was passed. Um, over the spring and the House Republican the bill, House right. Republican bill, correct. 
And um, they eventually added in um, these waivers that would potentially allow states to opt out of part of it. So insurers would still have to accept these patients, but they could uh, base their premiums a little bit higher for a year or so. Um, And this was something that was of huge concern to the moderates. If you look at the Senate side, this is something that um, Senate Majority Mitch McConnell really wants to retain. I think he really recognizes that it's important to have these protections in place. And so I think he's very, very reluctant um, to put anything into the bill that would compromise that and further alienate moderates. And so even though, as we mentioned before, CBO is considering this Cruz amendment that would potentially allow this opt out, uh, I, I think that McConnell would probably only allow for it if he saw, only saw it as sort of the only way to kind of get the Cruz Lee folks on board with the bill. And and Marta, why is this such a, a touchy issue? I mean, you would, it, it doesn't really impact that many people, or does it? Well, you know, there are various estimates of what percentage of people in this market have pre-existing conditions, but the Kaiser Family Foundation, which, you know, we're in their building, so for House we should cite their numbers, uh, they say it's like, you know, 24%, 27%, somewhere around a quarter of people who are in this market probably have the kind of pre-existing condition that might have made it difficult for them to get insurance at the normal price. And we should point out that th- those pre-existing conditions include not just cancer and diabetes and things that we think of as, you know, grave chronic conditions, but before the Affordable Care Act, you could be singled out and denied uh, uh, insurance if you'd had uh, acne treatment or if you've been treated for hay fever. It can, what, what constitutes a pre-existing condition, according to the insurance industry, could go way down. It was amazing to me when the House bill passed, I actually went back and looked at some of these documents from before Obamacare about like the underwriting guides that insurers were using to decide who to sell insurance to at what price and the applications that people had to fill out. And it really was amazing the kind of wide range of things that, first of all, the insurance company wanted to know about you. So, you know, if you answered yes to a question like, I've had a fracture before, then you might have to fill out like 10 pages of forms and send your x-rays and explain every single thing about like what was the nature of your fracture and how did it heal and what does your doctor say. And, you know, similarly for almost any condition, you know, if you'd had a child, you might have to, you know, submit all of your obstetric records so that they knew whether you'd had a C-section or whether you'd had any other kind of complications. So it was definitely a different time in which, you know, insurance company, the reason why we have this problem is that insurance companies uh, need to they need to be able to evaluate how much it's going to cost to cover the populations that they're covering. And before Obamacare, um, there was nothing to pull healthy people into the market. So the kind of people that wanted to buy health insurance tended to be people who had health conditions. So if you had, you know, a history of rheumatoid arthritis, like you really needed health insurance. You were the kind of person who was going to come into the market and buy insurance. But if only people with rheumatoid arthritis bought insurance, then, you know, the premiums would have to be exorbitant. And no one who didn't have a serious health condition would be able to afford insurance. And so, you know, this is the difficulty with insurance markets. What Obamacare tried to do to fix that is it did a couple of things. The one thing that it did is it put in the individual mandate. So it basically said, if you can afford to buy insurance, you have to buy insurance. And if you don't, you have to pay a fine. So that was try to encourage people like get in while you're still healthy and help balance out the premiums to cover the people who are already sick. It also said you can't just buy insurance whenever you want. You know, if you're in the ambulance, that is not when you sign up for insurance. There'll be a set time of year when you're allowed to sign up for insurance. And again, that's to get people, you know, you want to get covered before something bad happens. And then perhaps the most important thing that Obamacare did to try to get more healthy people in was it offered people subsidies on a sliding scale according to their income. 
income. So if you were relatively low income, you could get pretty generous subsidies that would make insurance much more affordable to you. And that was sort of the carrot. You know, those other things are kind of sticks that basically said, you know, we're going to punish you if you don't do the right thing. But I think that the subsidies were really powerful in drawing people into the market who otherwise might have said, you know, I'm healthy. Health insurance is really expensive. It would be a big chunk of my budget. I just don't think it's a good financial choice. And I think there's a lot of evidence that providing people with that financial health made them kind of rethink that decision. But the mandate was sort of... Yeah, I was going to say... It was... Go ahead, Joanne. The mandate was too weak economically and too strong politically. There are still millions of people who are paying a penalty rather than getting the insurance. The it started out as what ninety five dollars the first year. I think it's six ninety five. Or there's a complicated percentage of your income, which two percent of your whatever percentage. I think it was your adjusted gross. I can't remember. But the you know it's not enormous. It is cheaper usually to pay for most people, depending on your income. It's going to be cheaper to pay the fine and take your chances than it is to to pay the cost of insurance for for depending on your income. Yes, if you're as Margo pointed out, you know the lower incomes you have the higher subsidies. When you get toward the top of the subsidy, or you're just off the subsidy level, the four hundred percent of poverty, health care, it's still very expensive. Well, that was what I was going to ask. Right. So but politically, I mean, people yeah. hate the mandate. I mean, not, and it's not just Republicans. It is the single most, the individual mandate is the single most disliked piece of the Affordable Care Act. And, and Democrats, Republicans, Republicans hate it more, but Democrats don't like it either. And it's, it, people don't really sort of understand um, it's how, how the market works and why it's needed. It becomes, it's very easy to just say, this is the government telling you, you have to have insurance. People don't like being told that. And of course, you know, all the analogies had to do with green vegetables. And if you didn't happen to like broccoli or kale or whatever it was, you know. I haven't heard that one in a while. It was broccoli in the Supreme Court decision, I think. Right. You know, um, personally, I don't have a problem with broccoli, but okra would do it for me. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, but there still is this recognition. You do have to have some kind of mandate. And so you see in the House bill that they approach it by by allowing insurers to raise rates by 30% for people who haven't had continuous coverage for two months. That's largely seen even as weaker than the individual mandate. The Senate bill takes a different approach. You would have to wait six months for your coverage to kick in if you hadn't had coverage for two months in the previous year. And it's actually really it's kind of hurt Republicans in a sense in their CBO score because the CBO said because the individual mandate's gone, you have that weaker incentive. About 15 million people in that first year after the Senate bill would pass would choose just not to buy coverage because the incentive isn't strong enough. A lot of people said uh, the House bill actually, in a way, it almost incentivizes like healthy people to wait to buy coverage because if you're making that calculation of, okay, my premium is going to be 30% more for a year, that is in the end a lot cheaper than buying coverage for a whole year. This is sort of the fundamental political conundrum of this, which is that the pre-existing condition that that insurers have to cover people with pre-existing conditions and they can't charge them more is the most popular part of the bill. Does everybody kind of agree that that's, that's what people right. seem to like the most? They hate the mandate. They like the pre-existing well, conditions. So if you could create a bill... That, you know, the magic, perfect American dream bill, there'd be no band-aids and great coverage. That's right. But, but and that's, affordable with no government involvement. But but in truth, if you're going to have the pre-existing condition requirements and you want the insurance market to work, you have to have some sort of mandate, coercion, call it what you will, some kind of some kind of stick to encourage healthy people to sign up. Has anybody seen anything that would do this that wouldn't be as unpopular as, you know, we've now sort of looked at all the ways Medicare, you know, if you don't sign up for Medicare when you're when you're first eligible, you end up paying a, a 10% penalty for the rest of your life. I mean, it gets really expensive if you miss your sign up for Medicare. Right, and the House bill takes that idea, but as Paige just pointed out, it's 30% for one year. It's not perpetual. So if you end up with an expensive condition 
30% could be a bargain. So what you have to do is if you have this problem now of of healthy people not buying in because the incentive's too weak, you have more sick people, then you have to infuse more money into the marketplace to bring those premiums down for the sick people. So it's really been interesting to me how Republicans, even conservatives, have really turned to this idea of reinsurance and the government actually paying money into these high-risk pools, which is just kind of ironic. Because, well, you should explain what the reinsurance is. Right. So this was actually – there were bits more – there was reinsurance money in the House bill originally, and then more was added to kind of get members on board. But the, the concern was that the premiums were, were just going to be too high um, for these sick folks since you were going to have to have payments to these insurers so that they could – be able to cover the cost of these sicker patients. Um, but it's been really weird because the salu- it's actually has been the conservatives supporting that because their whole line has been, we got to bring premiums down, uh, but we don't want at this individual mandate. And so how are we going to do it? We're going to uh, infuse the, the marketplace with more government funding through these reinsurance pools to bring premiums lower. Which is exactly what the Affordable Care Act did, and then the Republicans defunded it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, they've called it, what did they, what was the phrase they used for it? Right. It was the bailouts for a long time. And so that has really shifted. But there's sort of a long history of this conflict in the health policy debate. So uh, I lived in New Hampshire when Romney Care passed in Massachusetts. And so I was sort of close to that debate and remember really clearly that, you know, Governor Romney at the time really didn't want to have a mandate. And he hired these smart economists and said, OK, like if we do all the other stuff, if we give people subsidies, we give them incentives to come in early, we provide a really great marketplace, all this other policy structure that was quite similar to Obamacare, like do we really have to force people? Do we have to have a stick? And, you know, the economists looked at it and they're like, yeah, you would cover like half as many people and it would cost two thirds as much. Like the math just didn't really make sense. And, you know, I think Romney was like a relatively sort of technocratic guy and he saw those numbers and said, okay. And then you guys may remember when President Obama was running for president, when he was a candidate, he also opposed the individual mandate because I think, you know, as Joanne says, like a lot of Democrats don't really like it. People don't like being forced to do things. And he said, I don't think we need that. We can we can do a different approach. And, you know, a bunch of economists came to him after he was elected and like showed him the numbers. And they were somewhat similar to the numbers that had been shown to Governor Romney. And he changed his mind about that, too. I think it's just extremely difficult to figure out how to make an insurance market work where there aren't some kind of strong incentives for healthy people to buy coverage before they need it. And because I think it's, one, our, okay. it's our, you know, it's our natural instinct. You know, you people try to save money. I mean, or you think you don't need it, or you think you're not going to get sick, or you, or you just don't get around to it, or you're going to do it later. I mean, you know, that's the reality too. Is that you need you need somebody you you know. There's this. You don't want government. Americans don't want government wagging their its finger and saying you have to do this. You must do this. And the same time, you know, there's a lot of incentives not to do it. So and then the health and the healthcare market. The states that tried doing consumer protections: New York State, Washington State. Some of the states tried to do the consumer protections, the pre-existing condition protections, things like that, without the mandate. And the only thing that happened is the insurance costs went sky high. In Kentucky, they tried to do it, and every every insurer dropped out of the individual market. And they had to. This was in the '90s, and then they had to to turn around and and make it go away. One and th- you know, most states require you to have car insurance if you have a car. So you know, it is not a problem that is unique just to health insurance. People don't like that mandate either. One thing I want before we we leave this, I want to make sure that people understand. You know, we keep talking about the insurance market, the insurance market. We're really only talking about the individual insurance market here, which is really not very big. Um, you know, there are there are problems, and this was the the thing that was broken before the Affordable Care Act. Now it's still not it's not as it's still not terribly functional. It's a little bit more functional than it was then. But you know, who who has the statistic? How many people are there in the individual market right now? Included in, in the exchanges or total? But total. 
It's around 20 million people. We actually don't have great data on this. But 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 there and then, you know, people keep saying they're because I think Ted Cruz over the weekend was talking about the 10 million people in the individual market. And I'm like, no, those are the 10 million people in the exchange. Right, it's, but it's also an ex- it's for many people. They're in and out of it. Some people you're self-employed. You're going to be in the mid. You have you have a very small business. You're a self-employed architect or whatever. You're going to be in the individual market your whole working life. Many, many, many people, whether the Obamacare exchanges or the off exchange markets before Obamacare and during Obamacare. This is what the individual ma- market has often been a stopgap market. You're between jobs, you're trying to start a business, you, you're, you know, your marital situation changed, whatever. For many people, there's, you know, the word that the industry uses is churn. I mean, people come in and out. So, um, it, so when you look at some of the statistics or the way people coming in and out and, and the critics of the law sort of say, see, they're not, you know, there's so much churn. There's, there's always churn and there probably always will be churn because that's the nature of the individual market. A lot of it is stopgap. Okay. But there's I, one other I thing I just wanted to say about pre-existing conditions is that, first of all, I just think it's a terrible term, and I, I would like it if we would come up with something better. I hate saying it. I hate writing it. But I do. It's think, better than interoperability. That's true. It's better than interoperability. <laughs> <laughs> that's a healthcare IT joke. But it's it's become sort of this rallying cry. So even though I think it's a terrible, non-transparent term, people talk about it all the time. And I think there are a bunch of things that have gotten mixed together in this term. So you know. The pre-existing conditions protections in Obamacare are designed to make it so that if you had acne before, you can still buy health insurance in the future. That is a little bit different than protections that help people who are sick right now. And I think one of the things that this that both the House and Senate Republican bill would weaken about the insurance consumer protections are what happens to people who buy insurance maybe when they're healthy and then they get sick. And that's not pre-existing conditions, but it's sort of talked about as if it's the same thing. So, you know, what these bills do is they would allow insurers to cover fewer medical benefits. So you might buy a plan that didn't cover prescription drugs, didn't cover mental health care or hospitalization for a mental uh, health problem. Addiction treatment might not be covered. Maternity benefits might not be covered. And those are the kinds of things that... You know, you may be healthy, and when you're healthy and you buy the plan, you think the plan is great, and then something happens to you, and it turns out that your insurance doesn't cover the thing that you need. Or maybe you are sick, and the only plan you can buy doesn't cover your health care needs. So I think that there are those kinds of problems, too, that affect people who have health conditions. They may or may not be pre-existing, but they're worth sort of thinking about and chewing on. Well, to, to quote the president, this stuff is complicated, but we're going to leave this for today. And before we go, we're going to wrap up with the segment that we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story that they read recently that they think everybody else should read, too. And don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Paige, let's start with you. What is your extra credit assignment this week? I'd like to talk about a story that is actually from Joanne's team over at Politico. It caught my eye earlier this week uh, called How the GOP Medicaid Overhaul Could Become the Next Fiscal Cliff uh, by Jen and Rachana on the healthcare team over there. And I thought it was really smart because it talks about how, you know, the Senate bill would enact these steep Medicaid cuts, but they're far into the future. The steepest cuts wouldn't go into effect till 2026. And when you look historically, Congress has been very reticent to actually allow cuts this deep to go into place. You look at the sustainable growth rate formula with Medicare and how year after year they would enact this doc fix. Um, and so this story, they had some really interesting quotes. They talked to Senator uh, John Cornyn, and he, he says, we all expect that no matter what we do, somebody's going to come back and say they want it plussed up, uh, which is, I think, a really, really smart piece uh, pointing that out. Joanne? Um, I won't. I won't plug a political piece every week, but this week it's not even somebody who works for me. It's part of our e-health team. David Pittman wrote a really interesting story about telemedicine in schools. The um, the, the school nurse is not just someone who gives out a Band-Aid anymore for, for – 
parts of the country, rural areas with fewer providers, low-income areas where there's a lot of complexity of both their social environment and the health care. The school nurse is a big deal. And they've been using a lot more telemedicine. Republicans love telemedicine. Medicaid has been paying for telemedicine. It, there are fewer obstacles to paying in Medicaid than in you Medicare. say what telemedicine and this is. <laughs> telemedicine is using a computer or, you know, some kind of a Skype-like secure, safe way of seeing a doctor without being in the doctor's office. Anyway, schools have been using it. Telemedicine, Medicaid has been paying for it. And that, David reported, will be threatened by uh, the cuts in Medicaid in, this, in the Senate bill and the House bill. Margo. So I wanted to talk about a good news story. Um, and let me just pr- uh, step back and say there was a bad news story that really moved me in ProPublica a couple of weeks ago called The Last Person You'd Expect to Die in Childbirth. And it was from uh, Nina Martin and Renee Montaigne from NPR. And it sort of was looking at how the United States has quite a bad problem with maternal mortality, women dying in or shortly after childbirth. It's much worse here than in other countries. Uh, And then this week, it was really nice to see uh, Julia Belouz at Vox.com did a piece looking at California, which actually is really bucking this trend. As the U.S. is kind of on a bad trajectory, California has substantially improved its maternal mortality. And this story really talks about the things that they did that made a difference. And they feel really concrete and easily replicable by other places. Great. And here's mine. It's from the Washington Post. It was over the weekend. It's called The Unexpected Political Power of Dentists by Mary Jordan. It's a great story. It's now, yeah, it really was a great story. It's it's not actually news that dentists spend a lot of time and money trying to prevent lawmakers from allowing less highly trained practitioners to basically poach their patients. Doctors did the same thing for years um, to, to limit what physician assistants and nurse practitioners could do. But this story really goes behind the scenes in the lobbying and really shows how money can talk way more loudly than some sometimes good policy, particularly when it comes to getting dental care to people in places who currently just don't have it available. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can email me at jrovner at kff.org with suggestions for future shows. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. And Margo, your Twitter handle? I'm at Sanger Katz. Joanne? I'm Joanne Kennan. I'm PW underscore Cunningham. Great. We'll be back in your feed soon. In the meantime, be healthy.